Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. This morning we're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 3. We're actually going to cover the entire chapter. Again, because of the length, I'm not going to read the entire chapter because we'll be moving through it. But I am going to read from Daniel 3, 16 to 18 because it's kind of the central point of what God is speaking to us in this chapter. This is a very familiar story to all of us. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 Hear now the word of the living, sovereign God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. On April the 18th, 1521, so just over 500 years ago, Martin Luther had been called to come and stand before the Diet of Worms. It was a council that was meeting at Worms in Germany, and he was called to come and recant all the things he had been writing and teaching, particularly regarding justification by faith alone. And Luther came, and he asked for a little more time to pray, and over the night he had prayed and wrestled with the devil, so God's angel came and strengthened him. And then the next morning, Luther spoke to the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V, and all of the other assembled bishops and people of power, <clears throat> and he said this, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Some witnesses because uh, there was a, an immediate uproar, some witnesses said they heard Luther say, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. Luther then was whisked out of the hall, everybody expected him to die immediately. However, there had been a plot hatched, and on the way back out of the uh, council that night, he was kidnapped. And he was carried off to a council where he actually, I mean, to a castle where he was hidden. Nobody knew who he was. He was under an assumed identity. And he actually translated the New Testament into German. And really, this was a, a major point in the Reformation. Luther stood firm in faith and was saved. On October the 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were two leaders in the same movement. They were accused of being followers of Luther, though they weren't directly, they were, but they were teaching the same things out of the Scripture. They had been accused. They had been tried. On October the 16th, 1555, they were tied to the stake. The sticks were stacked around them, and they were being lit on fire. And as they were being lit on fire, Hugh Latimer said these words, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. They stood in faith against the powers that be and died. Two different groups of people, same basic struggle, both stood in faith, two very different outcomes. And both of them are examples of what is going on here in Daniel chapter three and what it means to stand in faith and how we stand strong 
in fiery trials. So we're going to dig in today and take a look at this and see what it means for us to do the same. Now notice we begin with this uh, a statue of gold or an image of gold and two decrees from King Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're told right off in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold and it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and he sets it up out in the plain outside the city of Babylon. Now this thing is massive. You may have heard of the Colossus of Rhodes from the ancient world, which was built not long after this. The Colossus of Rhodes was actually 105 feet high. It was even larger than this statue, but it's almost the size of the Colossus of Rhodes, and it's covered completely in gold. From archaeological information, it's probably not entirely made of gold. It's probably covered in gold, so when you see, all you can see is gold. Now, this should remind us, if you're following the book of Daniel, you remember in Daniel chapter 2, the last thing we had heard about was this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. And remember, there was a statue made of some gold, some silver, some bronze, and then some iron and iron mixed with clay, representing these four kingdoms. And he'd been told by Daniel, you're the head of gold. Next thing we read, Nebuchadnezzar setting up a massive image, and it's entirely made of gold. He's not recreating the thing. He's making it, it's all about him. It's what he's made of. That's what the entire statue is going to be made of. Now, what we're not certain, because we're not told in the text, is, is this image an idol of one of their gods, or is it of Nebuchadnezzar himself? We're not told, interestingly enough in the text, who the image is of. Now, we do know that Nebuchadnezzar is behind it, and we also know that it is used for worship. So really both are involved, whether it's of Nebuchadnezzar or it's an idol of one of their gods, it is a massive image. Nebuchadnezzar is deeply involved in this, and it is to be used for worship. Now, why I say Nebuchadnezzar is clearly to be involved, and the writer wants us to know this, if you notice in verse 1, it says, he set it up on the plain. That phrase, Nebuchadnezzar setting it up, is used in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 15, verse 18. Now, I've told you before, you, you don't have to get a doctorate and be able to read the original language. When something is repeated that many times, here's a tip. Pay attention. It's important. And so throughout this story, Nebuchadnezzar is setting it up. Nebuchadnezzar is acting. And Nebuchadnezzar is expecting a certain response. So clearly, the image is linked with him. But here's an interesting point. As far as we know from other records in the scripture and outside, Babylonian kings were never worshipped as gods themselves. Unlike some of the other emperors and stuff in the ancient Near East, they didn't do this. So it would be unusual for Nebuchadnezzar to set up an image of himself and then say it was to be worshipped. And as we're going to see in the passage, worship is central. That's what's going on here. So we're not sure. Perhaps it's an idol, perhaps it's Nebuchadnezzar, but in either way, Two things are involved. It's strongly related to Nebuchadnezzar and this, you know, his, probably his vision in chapter 2. And secondly, it's requiring worship. And, and by the fact that it's all of gold, it's probably meant to proclaim, well, I had the dream. It says kingdoms are going to come and kingdoms are going to go, but this statue is all of gold. My kingdom is just going to keep going and going and going. And that kind of prepares us for what we'll look at next week in chapter 4. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's a slow learner, okay? He's a very slow learner, kind of like all of us. Uh, so this is going on here. Now, Nebuchadnezzar then sends out a decree, and the decree is he wants to gather all the leaders of his kingdoms. And notice, it actually repeats some of the stuff that I'm just going to show here in verse 2 and 3. We're told he summoned all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to this dedication. And it's going to repeat that list in a couple of verses. Because what it's trying to say is this is the leaders of every level from all over the empire. And it's, it's repeated twice. And that's not because they just like to say things twice. 
That was their way. Kind of like, you know, if you watch a movie and they keep showing something, they drag it out and, you know, impressive music playing. And you're kind of like, ooh, something's going on here. That's what they're saying. And the point is very simple. Nebuchadnezzar rules the, what they knew of as the world. They didn't know of anything outside this. He rules it all. And he's bringing together people from all over the world. They're all there. So you're going to need to be with the program because everybody is together. Now, I might just say as just a sidelight, this is probably, it may even be that Nebuchadnezzar is kind of doing the Tower of Babel thing again. Remember, way back in Daniel 1, verse 2, we were told that they went away to Shinar, which is the word for the Tower of Babel, back in Genesis chapter 11. And you remember in Genesis chapter 11, everybody was together, and they were all trying to work together to do something, and God said, this is trouble, because you're trying to be unified, but you're being unified against me. So I'm going to confuse your languages, I'm going to spread you out, I'm going to separate you into different kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar is now bringing all these languages back together to one place in the same location and saying we're all going to get on the same page, which is kind of a problem, okay? We're really almost again back in Genesis 11 before God's call to Abraham. And I might just point out to you, whenever people start talking and trying to get everybody unified and it's not under the banner of Jesus Christ, expect problems. There's no way, friends. We, in our sin, we don't unify. We simply don't. Jesus is very interested in bringing us together and out of the many making one. But we on our own always mess this up. And we're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar does it. So everybody comes, and they're standing in front of the image. And it's really not unexpected. Nebuchadnezzar at this point is probably still, you know, a little bit earlier in his reign. And they're expecting they're all going to take an oath of loyalty. Kind of like, you know, when we, every time I would get promoted in the military, we would have to take our oath of office again. We would swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and it was an expected thing. You knew this was going to happen. Well, they're probably expecting that they're going to have to take some kind of a loyalty oath to Nebuchadnezzar. Not really that big a deal. Well, then we get a second decree. And the second decree is this. They're all out on the plain, and a herald loudly proclaims in verse 4, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Again, notice we're kind of doing the Babel thing in reverse. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, I won't read all the instruments, all these instruments, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So you're going to have to worship. And to, to up the ante, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. See, this is the problem. When you are trying to create unity apart from God and the gospel, you're ultimately going to go to compulsion. There's no other way to do it. You're not going to get human beings together apart from compulsion. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I want everybody to worship. You should. I mean, this is a massive statue. You should worship it. And by the way, if you don't, then you're going into the fire. So they all hear this. And the fact is, for most of the people there, this is not a problem. They got more gods than there are different types of cereal in the local supermarket. I mean, they just got gods everywhere. And so if you say, just add another one, they're like, no problem. We'll add another god to our mix. So the, even though this may have been sprung on them, it's not really a problem for them. It's simply another idol, another god. Nebuchadnezzar wants us to do it. Sure, why not? I'll bow down. I'll do my part. And it appears that there is universal obedience to the command. We read in verse 7, as soon as they hear the sound of all these instruments, you know, the, the music is going, they're getting everybody in the spirit, and then we read, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So notice again, it's all these different nations, all these different languages, because the writer's wanting us to get the point here. This is not just one or two people off. If you're going to stand at this moment, you're standing against the world, because everybody's gathered. Everybody's getting with the program. Everybody wants you to do it, and this is the expected 
and the typical response. Because here's what goes on. Whenever you've got idolatry going on, there are three different groups of people that will worship. Some worship willingly. They're like, this is awesome. Yes, I believe in this God, and I'm going to give my life for this. There's another group, probably even larger, that simply worships to go along with the majority. Whatever everybody else is doing, I will just jump in with them. And then there's a third group who don't really care to go along with the majority. They may think the whole thing is crazy, but they were like, oh, but there's that fiery furnace. I can see the smoke coming over there. Okay, I can get down. I'll get with the program. And there's always three different groups like that. And so um, this is what's going on around them. And Every age, I want us to, to get this, this is for us as people of exile, there appears to be almost universal worship of idols of the day. And friends, you're going to have to have faith, like Luther, like uh, Master Ridley and Hugh Latimer, you're going to have to have faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if you're not going to bow. Because make no mistake, just like Nebuchadnezzar, when the culture sets up an idol, they want everybody with the program. And if you don't get with it, there will be trouble. Now, this is a problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not even sure. Daniel's apparently not there. He's probably off on king's business. He's higher-level governor. So he's not there. But, but these three are there, and they know they cannot worship idols. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5, in the Ten Commandments, both the first and the second commandment forbid this. Number one, in verse three, you have the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So they're like, well, whatever God this is, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's Marduk or Bel, it's not Yahweh, and I'm not allowed to worship another god. But then secondly, even if it's left open-ended and pick whatever your god is and just think this is an image of him, they're told in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You can't even worship Yahweh with an image, with an idol. So it doesn't matter which way you break down what's going out on the plane, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, we, we can't get along with this. We cannot do this. So there is no way for a faithful Jew to obey this decree. They can't worship another god, and they can't use images to even worship Yahweh. So we got a problem. This is where the plot's going to thicken. Now, what happens then is we see an accusation, a test, and a threat. Now, the accusation is this. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar can't see. There's so many people there. They're spread out. He doesn't even notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't worship. He's probably all happy seeing all these other people getting along with the program. He doesn't notice it. And perhaps for a moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought, hey, we got away with it. But we read, starting in verse 8, some of the astrologers come forward. This is the people who've gone through school with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the people who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's prayers along with Daniel got their life saved. But they've forgotten about that. So notice they come to Nebuchadnezzar and we read in verse 12, there are some Jews who you've set over the affair. So notice the first thing is there's Jews. Don't, don't miss the point here. These are outsiders. They're not like us. You brought them in here, but they're not like us. And then secondly, O Nebuchadnezzar, you set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Far be it from us, O king, to question your judgment, but you not only brought these guys in, they're foreigners, they won't give up the program, but, but you put them in charge of a whole bunch of stuff. So, some of us report to them, but now we're reporting on them. And then thirdly, Notice the final phrase. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image you have set up. So their problem with them being Jews, they're exiles, they're not part of the thing. You've, there's some professional jealousy going on here. It coalesces in this phrase, they won't serve your gods nor worship the image. See, they're not like us, Nebuchadnezzar. They're not getting with the program, and they never will get with the program. Now, if you pay attention, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are parallel chapters. It's forming a chiasm in A, B, C, C, B, A. And Daniel 3 and 6 are together, 
And why did, what happened when they came to Daniel? Oh, king, didn't you set up a decree? Daniel's not listening to the decree. See, he's not like us. And they're all jealous of Daniel, we're told. It's the exact same thing is going to happen again in Daniel chapter 6. So this is an issue for us. We need to read ourselves and understand ourselves what would it have been like for us. God's exiled people cannot join in the idol worship of the culture and will therefore always be the subject of suspicion and accusation. This has been repeated over and over and over again in history. People are looking and waiting for a way to do this. If you go today, a great example, this is in Pakistan. They have blasphemy laws, which means that if you say something against the prophet Muhammad, that is considered blasphemy and is punishable by death. You know how those laws are done most often? I'm a Christian. I have a little shop. There's a Muslim next door who has a little shop. My little shop is doing better than his little shop. He gets jealous, and suddenly there's a claim that I burned the Koran or I said something about Muhammad. No evidence it ever happened. In fact, time after time after time, it's proven it didn't happen. But there is, these people are outsiders. These people are doing well, and I'm jealous of them. Therefore, I'm going to make an accusation to get them in trouble. This has been repeated over and over and over again. In fact, it's been the normal experience of Christians down throughout history, except for a little bubble that you and I have happened to have been living in. But make no mistake, that's not normal. And make no mistake, we may be headed right back into that same experience. It's the normal Christian life. So this accusation is made, and Nebuchadnezzar, to his credit, doesn't immediately just fly off the handle. We're told that he's, he's very angry. I mean, he's furious or rage, but he brings them in. And what he does is he calls and tests them. And we get the same thing again, okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it true what I heard that, that you're not falling down and worshiping? Now, I'm going to get this whole same music thing going again. We're going to get the, the worship team back up here, and they're going to play again. And this time, you better get with the program. This time, you better fall down. And I'm telling you, if you don't, I've had the accusation, I'm now giving you a threat, or what he would call a promise. I will throw you into that fire, that furnace right over there. See it? See all the smoke? You're going in there, and then he throws a taunt out. And when I do that, what God could save you from my hand? Now see, in chapter 2, he's learned, that. remember Daniel said he's the God of wisdom and power. Well, God is clearly the God of wisdom, and Nebuchadnezzar knows that. God revealed the dream and gave the interpretation. But that's different than saying, when I throw them in the fire, see Nebuchadnezzar's seen and known of this before. When you throw somebody in the fire, what happens? How often do they burn? Every time he's ever seen. Okay, this is a one for one. I throw them in the fire, they burn. I throw them in the fire, they burn. Doesn't matter what God they worship. Your God may have wisdom. Your God may be able to reveal things I didn't think he could reveal, but there's a way the universe operates. And I've got the power here. And when I put my hand on you and you are thrown into the furnace, no God can save you. Now, in light of what went on in Daniel 2, because he was told in Daniel 2, you got the dream, God revealed the dream, and God's telling you he's got the power. And it's not all an image of gold. Your kingdom's going to fall away, Nebuchadnezzar. He's either forgotten that lesson or he's just being willingly rebellious. But isn't that true of all of us? Man, human beings are so quick to forget God's past actions, to underestimate his power, and to overestimate our own strength. That's, that's what we're like. We forget what God has done we underestimate what he can do in the present, but I got a high estimation of what I 
can accomplish. And see, that's the exact opposite of faith. So the question for the three of them is, how are they going to respond to this test? How are they going to respond to the threat? How are they going to respond to the taunt? It's a real test of faith. Out there, they're in the midst of a crowd. Maybe they think that they're anonymous. Right now, you are standing. It's like Luther standing in front of the Holy Roman Emperor. It's like Latimer and Ridley, when you're told you will either recant or see, we've got the, the wood stacked up right there. It's a lot harder to stand at that moment. It's easy to be brave when you're kind of anonymous. How are they going to respond for it? And notice, this is the first time they're being tested for their faith. In chapter 2, their life was in danger, but it was just merely as part of a group. They just happened to be part of the wise men. Now, it's their faith that's causing the problem. So, do you stand or do you crumble? That's the question of what's going to happen with them. And then we come to the verses that I read, and this is what is central for us to understand. And that is their response of faith. Notice again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. This is verse 16. Now, this is not them being arrogant. This is a humble, confident faith that recognizes Yahweh can defend himself. You, you said no God can, can deliver? Well, we, we don't have to answer. You've taunted the Lord. The Lord can answer for himself. Let me state just briefly for us, friends, whenever I watch people, whatever it is they believe, and they start stomping and shouting and hollering, my first thought is, I'm not sure you're as confident about what you're saying you believe as you're proclaiming. Because if you really believe in your, yeah, I don't need to do all of that. I can be, uh, I can be calm about it. I used to irritate my children when they were young because we would be out playing basketball. And at the time, uh, Michael Jordan was, you know, the, the greatest player alive at the time. Might still be. But we were out there, and I would taunt Michael Jordan and say, I'm the most awesome player alive. And if Michael Jordan wants to come here, I will school him would irritate my children to no end, which is why it was fun. But if Michael Jordan had been there, I can assure you he wouldn't have started stomping around and saying, I'm better than you are. He would have not felt threatened. He would have been very confident, especially after watching me for about a minute and a half, that, that this, was, this was not going to be a problem. I mean, there was, you know, white men can't jump, and then there was me, okay? Not going to be a problem for him. That's the way they are. And friends, that's the first thing about faith. Faith is, has a humility about it. I, I don't need to shout and scream. The, the Lord can answer the taunt. Second thing, they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. So we're not even declaring that God's going to stop us from being thrown into the furnace. But if we are thrown in, God is able to save us. You don't think he can? We're telling you there is a God that can deliver us from your hand. God has the power to save us. But notice this, because sometimes we get groups that want to stop there. If you try this, faith says, I will be delivered. Well, Luther was. Latimer and Ridley were not. And we know right now, because we've read it before, we know what's going to happen with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But go read Hebrews 11. Many of the people in Hebrews 11 are there because they were not delivered. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go on and say, God may sovereignly choose not to save us. That is up to him. Our faith does not dictate the outcome to God. It does not doubt God's power to act and save, but it does not dictate to God. It humbly acknowledges God's sovereignty and how he chooses to act. That's what real faith is. And then notice there's a third component. It's humble and confident because it's trusting in God. Secondly, it will state very clearly and boldly, God is able to deliver. But even if he chooses not to, we still trust in him. And then the third thing is, we will not, 
Even if God chooses not to, even if we are about to be thrown in the fire, we will not recant because we do not know what God and his sovereignty is going to do, but we do know this. We know what we are going to do and what we are not going to do. As a response of faith, we will not bend, we will not bow, and we do not care if we burn. Play the man, Master Ridley. And we know that God will use it for his own glory, and we have a better resurrection awaiting us. That is what faith does. Even if God does not deliver us, we will not become idol worshipers. True faith obeys God and his word in spite of consequences. Perhaps, you know, we face a time in the future, and you'll be thrown in jail. If you don't agree with this or say this or do this, God's able to protect me and keep me out. But even if he does not, I will go to jail. I will not compromise the truth of God. A faith that will only obey as long as God makes the circumstances favorable is an immature, unformed faith that will not flourish in the land of exile. Because once it's known that if you make a threat, they'll crumble, what's, what are they going to keep doing? Just making threats. That's the way it will work. So this is what's going on. And so we might suspect, let's, let's imagine we've never heard this story again. What we're hoping is, what's the next verse? And the Lord sent an angel and put the fire out. And Nebuchadnezzar relit it and they put it out. Or, you know, an angel came and slew all of them. But to our chagrin, what do we read actually happened? Nebuchadnezzar gets even more angry. I mean, this guy seriously needs a counselor, right? I mean, coming from a guy who struggled with anger, this guy's got a real anger problem. He's furious and he says, I want you to heat the flame seven times. Now, this is hyperbole because we know how hot their furnaces could go. They, he couldn't have even gotten it twice as much. He's just saying, I want you to make it as hot as it can be. And in fact, to, to really overload, I don't want you to just get some people. I want you to tie them up, and I want you to get the biggest, strongest guys I got in the whole army. I don't know why. They're all tied up. There's nothing they can do. But get them. They're going to come in here because I'm going to show these guys I am angry, and I'm going to show nobody can stop me from doing what I want. So the guys take them, and here's, Here's a point for us to pay attention to. The guys who obey Nebuchadnezzar and they bind up the, uh, the three and go to throw them in the furnace, what happens to those who've obeyed Nebuchadnezzar? They die. Yeah, obeying him doesn't necessarily work out to your good. See, they heard it and fell down, worshiped, had no problem doing that. The next thing they find out is they're dead from following this king. And the three faithful believers are thrown into the furnace. God does not keep them out of the flames. Okay, the song we sang this morning, How Firm a Foundation, all those verses are coming out of Isaiah. If, if through the fiery trial I call you to go, if I call you to go through the waters, those are out of Isaiah, we'll see them in a couple minutes, then, then know that that's my call. So these three are thrown into the furnace. And I want to encourage you, when you read these kind of stories, read it like the first time. Let the terror they experienced sink in. Let it be like, I remember the first time I read Chronicles of Narnia to my two oldest, to Tim and to Jeremy. And we came to the point, and they were assuming Aslan's going to win. And suddenly when Aslan is killed, they were both in tears and they're like, Daddy, that can't be right. That's not what happened. It was so bad. I said, okay, Daddy's going to read the next chapter tonight. I'm not going to leave y'all hanging. for day. Because they were sure the story's going to go. If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, it's where the, when, when all of a sudden he, Wesley's died and the kid's like, you're reading the story wrong. He can't have died. See, that's the way the story is meant to be read. No, wait, they, they can't have been thrown into the fire. Oh, yeah, they were. And we need to see that and understand. God has chosen not to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And faith-filled obedience is costing them their lives. That's where we stand in the story. But the story does not end there. Because as Nebuchadnezzar watches, he's astonished. 
And he starts saying, well, didn't, didn't I throw three guys into the fire? What in the world's going on? And he says, and I, I look, I'm amazed to see the three there unbound. Apparently the flames burned all the bonds right off of them. They are unharmed. And there's a fourth person in there with them. We threw three in, but one of the guards go in there with them. But they're all unbound. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods, is what Nebuchadnezzar says. And so God's emissary is there with the people. Actually, on After Hours this week, if you watch, I'm going to talk about who this is, Jesus, uh, <laughs> and why I b believe it is because I'm right. Uh, but I'll talk about what, what this phrase, the Son of God, means, why I believe that we should see Jesus in this and what's going on there. But notice at a minimum, whoever it is, if it were an angel, God has sent someone to be with them, is with them in the flames. And says, by the way, the bonds are burned off, you are set free, and we're just walking around in this furnace. And they are unharmed. If I've called you to go through the fire, God says he will be there. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls for them to come out. And notice we read, you know, again, satraps, prefects, governors, royal, we get this whole list again. They're all there. All of them are standing there with their mouth open and the three walk out and we're told their clothes are not burned. There's not even a smell of smoke on them. They are all in utter shock. And then at that point, and we won't take time because we've seen this the last two weeks and we're going to see it again uh, coming up, but Notice what happens again is Nebuchadnezzar ends up giving praise to God. He gave praise to God in chapter 2. He does it in chapter 3. He's going to do it again in chapter 4. He's a little bit slow picking up on what all that means. But, but God's at work here. He gives praise and recognition to the one true God. We're going to look at that a lot next week. And he also ends up promoting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even more, which we saw in chapter 1, chapter 2. We're seeing it here in chapter 3. Make no mistake, God's exile people, if we're going to prosper in the exile, it will not be by compromising our faith. It will be by standing firm, and if God lets me go into the fire, and if God does not deliver me, if I'm called to be Latter and Ridley, then by the grace of God, we'll set a fire that will roar throughout England for hundreds of years into the future. And if he does choose to deliver me, I will prosper because I didn't get with the program. Don't be one of the guards throwing them in. It's not the place to be. Now, how do we apply this? Two, two things. Number one, fiery trials are normal for God's exile people. I'm really not a sadomasochist. I don't just enjoy saying this stuff. Friends, this is the reality. And we need to understand this. Daniel, the book teaches, I mean, we've noticed so far we're three chapters in, what's happening in every chapter? I mean, there's a trial, there's a problem, there's danger in every chapter, and it's going to continue in the book. It's also throughout Scripture. Daniel 3 and 6 are in a, a description of what God's people can expect. They're in this chiasm, they're in this book. You can expect fiery trials and lions. That's the picture. And, and, and again, you know, they're forming a chiasm. They have to be understood together. And I want you to notice Daniel 3 is near the beginning of the exile. Daniel 6, him in the lion's den, is when Persia has already come to power. It's at the end of the exile. So they're bookend stories. There are undoubtedly other things that happen, but they're letting us know from the beginning of the exile to the end, it's tough being in exile. And it's tough whether it's Babylon or whether it's Persia. It does not matter where the land of your exile is. Expect there are going to be fiery trials. And they could have known this because Isaiah had prophesied it. Isaiah 40 to 66 is a prophecy to all the exiles because God had already told them because of Hezekiah's unfaithfulness, they were going to be sent into exile because Hezekiah had trusted in Babylon to save him. God said, okay, you want to lean on Babylon? You're going to go to Babylon. And then the next 26 chapters are Isaiah prophesying to the exiles, hundreds of years in the future, but he's letting them know, here's what God says. And here's Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, 
He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Friends, that is God's word to you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I am willing to bet as the fourth like the Son of God was walking around in the flames, this was the verse. I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure this is what they were talking about. Right there. They're going through it. And they went through this literally. But I want you to notice, here's a challenge. Notice it does not say if you are passing through, but when you walk through the fire. I wish it was if. But it's a promise. Put this one in your Jesus promise book. Exiles, exiles have fiery trials. It's what we expect. And this is true in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the entire book, and I remind you just by way of, you know, Peter's writing, and we know he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles, but his term is, you are the elect of God, the chosen of God that are scattered. And he uses the phrase diaspora. And he refers later on to Babylon. Because the entire letter is saying, don't you understand? You're God's exile people. Amen. This is what it means to be the people of God. It means you're not home in the promised land. You are exiles. You are strangers on earth. And Peter is talking because they are undergoing trials. And in 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Now, the NIV is translated as painful. The word there is literally fiery. That's the Greek word. It's the Greek word for fire. That's what they're doing. I think Peter's probably thinking of Daniel chapter 3. Because Probably when Peter was writing this, how did Nero like to deal with Christians? There were two ways that they were dealing with early Christians in Nero's reign. What were they doing? Feed them to the lions and lighten them on fire. Does that sound familiar? Any, any book of the Bible come to mind? That's what they're going through. And Peter's writing to these people. But notice he says, what, why, are you, why are you surprised? This isn't something strange. This is what it means to be in exile. But I remind you what we've been saying from the friend. I would rather be in exile, thrown into the fire, and chosen by God than not be part of God's people and experiencing temporal blessing. Because, friends, life is short. Eternity is long. Fiery trials now are short. A fiery hell is forever. I will take what it means to be the chosen of God because it is all worth it. So the question for us in this, do I expect to be ostracized for my faith? Bobby began the meeting by encouraging and challenging us to share the gospel with people. One of the reasons that we're afraid of doing that, which he was referencing, is because when you share and talk about Jesus, do most people go, that is awesome, please tell me more? Or do they say something a little less enthusiastic than that? Or oftentimes tell you, get out of my face, what's wrong with you? Okay? I know when I wasn't a Christian, I didn't tell Christians, oh, gee, please tell me more. I didn't want to hear it, okay? But God used those crazy Christians to open up. And thanks be to God, they were willing. Do we understand we're going to be ostracized for our faith? If we do, am I preparing now for how I'm going to respond when I'm called to compromise? Not if, when. Whatever form the furnace looks and you can smell the smoke and the person is making the threats, are you preparing now? Because, friends, it's, it's too late. It's too late once it started. We, we need to prepare now. We need to be being built up in our most holy faith. 
We need to be worshiping. We need to be in the word of God. We need to be coming to the Lord's table. We need to be strengthened. And we need to be thinking through and saying, I'm going to stand. And that means in whatever small test it is tomorrow, because make no mistake that the test keeps building, okay? Whatever small test it is tomorrow, it's okay. You can ostracize me. You can laugh. You can think I'm crazy. That's all right. I'm worse than you possibly know. But Jesus has chosen me, and I'm going to cling to him. And when they say, well, you know, you, you say life is short, eternity is long, that's your opinion. No, it's not. You know, unless you're saying it's my opinion that the sun rises in the east, it's cold in Antarctica in the dead of winter. Jesus was raised from the dead as surely as George Washington crossed the Potomac on Christmas. As surely as Caesar went across the Rubicon, he walked out of the grave. And he told me that there is an eternity. And if you don't agree with me, I am really sorry, and I'll be praying for you. But if you're expecting me to cower over that, not going to happen. Will not bend, will not bow, and I will not burn in the end. Okay? Exiles expect and prepare for fiery trials. They're simply part of the normal Christian life. They really are. We, we've lived in a bubble, but the bubble's bursting. So let's just be ready. Second, how do we respond to fiery trials? How do we respond in faith? Notice again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they give us a good short picture. Here's the three points. This is what faith looks like. Humble confidence before those who are mocking God. Trust in God's sovereign power. And unconditional obedience to God, no matter the cost. So let's think of each of these. Ask myself, when somebody mocks God, do I display humble confidence when I interact with them and they're doubting God and his power and his ways? Or do I say, they're arrogant, I'll be arrogant back? Do I say, they're angry and shouting, so I'll be angry and shout back. They're name-calling, so I'll name-call back. Or can I be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I, I don't have to answer you in all this. God, God can defend himself. Do I have a humble confidence? Because if we don't, that's probably the Holy Spirit revealing to me I need to be more in God's word and ask the Spirit to keep working it deep into me. It's something we grow in. Secondly, do I have a quiet trust in God's power to deliver and to establish his kingdom? Do I have a quiet trust in God's power to deliver and establish his kingdom? Too many American Christians today are all in a tizzy. They're all worried. They're, let me tell you, the kingdom of God is doing just fine. The church of Jesus Christ is growing the world over. In fact, the places the church is growing the fastest are the places where the fire is the hottest. It simply is. The dross is being consumed. The gold is being refined. The faith is being proclaimed. The church is growing. Do, do we recognize that and believe that? Or are we getting very myopic and it's like, oh, there's this, I, I'm not sure that somehow Jesus is not going to survive modernity. I think this postmodern culture, you know, he, the gospel's made it till now, but I'm just not sure it's going to make it. It's not going to survive the internet. It will. It's going to survive and do just fine. Do I believe that? Do I have true faith that embraces the sovereignty of God, or do I demand a particular outcome? There's a poison loose in much of the church, and it promises if you have faith, you will be healed, you will be wealthy. You will drive this car. You'll be good looking and your breath will never smell when you wake up. Okay? And it says that's what faith is. But according to that definition of faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no faith. Nor did Paul, Peter, or James. Nor did Latimer and Ridley they all died. But my money's on Paul and Peter and Latimer and Ridley 
and most of all, my faith's on Jesus, who said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup away. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's thing. So for God intervened and delivered them, but thanks be to God, he did not deliver Jesus Christ from the cross because we'd all be lost. Do I trust a sovereign God? And then do I recognize whatever God decides to do, what if being a Christian has a cost? What if America falls all around us and some of the craziness that's going on continues to march forward? We can't control all of that. I'm not responsible for all of that. What I am responsible is to say, I'm just going to keep walking with Jesus. And if that means trouble, ostracism, so be it. If that means I lose my job, so be it. If that means my children can't get in the good school, so be it. If it means I'm not allowed to serve in the government, so be it. I will be faithful. Now, let me tell you, it's hard for us to imagine right now, but the, that's been the normal course for most Christians. That's what it was like to serve faithfully. And somehow, the gospel survived. Rome threw Christians into the fire, and Rome burned down. Because God is faithful. Many Christians died, but God kept the faith going. So do we have that? And I would encourage you to think through these three and say, Lord, where am I the weakest? See, some people are just really obstinate, and so unconditional obedience they can do. But they struggle with actually really trusting in God's power to deliver. They just are like, well, it's going to be terrible. I'm going to get burned. It's the way it is. For some of us, it's the humble comments. But maybe this week, ask the Lord, which of these Am I weak? Where is your Holy Spirit working to build trust in me? Now, what we will um, do is we're going to come down to the table today. And as we come to the table of God's powerful provision, I want to encourage us that one like the Son of God's walked in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to tell you, again, whoever one may think that that is there in Daniel 3, we know this. Jesus walked through eternal fire for you and me. And because he did, you and I will not walk through the only fire that really matters. And when God calls you to go through the waters, and you're going to, it's called death. Here's good news. Jesus is going to meet you at Jordan's shore. He's not going to tell you, I hope you can swim across. One last test. Let's see if you can make it. He's going to be there, and he's going to carry you and I across. And so we today have a, a reminder, and we remember all that he's done, and that the Lord is going to meet us right here, right now, to strengthen us for whatever fiery trial you got this week. Some of us are walking through health things, and I wish I could say, God will heal you. I, I can't say that. I can say he's got the power to heal you. He may choose to heal you, but I know this. What I can say is, even if the sickness you're facing is your last sickness, Jesus will carry you through eternally and you will be raised in a glorious body with no suffering, no sickness, no pain. So we're going to come to the table, and if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe he alone is the way of salvation, it's, you know, like we were singing that song this morning, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody that saved my soul. If you believe that, if you believe Christ is the only way, we invite you to this table. It is the Lord's table. If you're not a believer and you don't believe that, then we encourage you, you should just let it pass because this is a meal for believers. But for those of us who are believers, I want to encourage you, let the Lord strengthen your faith this day. Whatever fiery trial you got going, he wants to meet you now uh, to give you strength to go through.
For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we pray that you would meet us here at this table this morning, that we would be reminded of your great faithfulness, that we would be strengthened. Lord, we want to stand strong in the day of trial, that we might be found pleasing in your sight. So we ask that you would meet us here at the table of your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and peel back the first layer and get the bread. Father, this bread is a symbol of that which sustains and makes provision. And it's also a reminder that there are those who would say that this whole universe has come to be on its own. But Lord, this amazing universe which we inhabit, which so richly provides seed for the sower and bread for the eater, Lord, you spoke it into existence by your powerful word. One word, and we came to be. And so Father, whatever Nebuchadnezzar we would be facing in our life this week, we cry out that now you would strengthen us body and soul and remind us that the same God who can speak and make all things is also the God who can speak and command our obedience and the God who can speak and deliver us to himself. Father, we thank you for being our Father through Jesus Christ. Friends, take and eat. Lord, as we take this cup into our hands, we are reminded that the cup represents your blood. Lord, we glory and revel in reading how you delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We love how you sent your angel and brought Daniel through the lion's den. We glory in how you even delivered Martin Luther so he could continue the work you had given to him. But as we hold this cup, we are reminded that Jesus, you were not delivered. And because you willingly gave yourself up and shed your blood, we are saved. You died that we might live. You bore the wrath that we might get the blessing. You took on death and hell and you quenched its flames, you broke its power and you have brought us out free. Lord, we hold up this cup and we give you thanks for the great deliverance that is ours through Jesus Christ. We take this cup professing in faith because he has borne the wrath we never will. Because his blood was poured out, we have been saved. Because he was cursed, we will be eternally blessed. Thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and strengthen us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Holy Spirit, we pray you would take from the very opening words of our time of worship this morning to the closing benediction and that you would fasten it to our hearts.
Lord, let us see Jesus and all he has done for us. And Lord, in that, let us be confident in our calling and our election and our place as one of your people. And Lord, let that prompt in us faith and let that faith usher in obedience. Oh Lord, I pray for us, whatever trial we are facing this week, Lord, I pray that you would come upon us. And as, as Bobby even began the meeting, Lord, that we were not given a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity, but we were given your Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Oh, Spirit of God, stir those things up within us and may we this week walk faithfully before the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would do these things in the name of Jesus for your glory and for our good. And God's people say, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Even if for a little while you suffer grief and all kinds of trials, know that they come so that your faith, which is worth more than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, that that faith will be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not yet seen him, but you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Friends, go forth filled with the blessing and the power of God and spread his blessing everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.